0: How's it going everyone it's Matty from LogicFX and in this video I'm just going to cover the 40 habits and tips of the world's top hedge fund managers. Do make sure to subscribe to our channel and we hope you enjoy the episode. Number 1. There is no holy grail in trading. Many traders mistakenly believe there is a single solution to defining market behaviour. Not only is there no single solution to the markets but those solutions that do exist are continually changing. The range of methods used by traders interviewed in hedge fund market wizards, some of which are even polar opposites, is a testament to the diversity of possible approaches. There are a multitude of ways to be successful in the markets, although they are hard to find and achieve. Number two, find a trading method that fits your personality. Traders must find a methodology that fits their own beliefs and talents. A sound methodology that is successful for one trader can be a poor fit and a losing strategy for another trader. Oshia, hedge fund manager, lucidly expressed this concept in answer to the question of whether trading skill can be taught. He mentions, if I try to teach you what I do, you will fail because you are not me. But if you hang around me, You will observe what I do and you may pick up some good habits, but there are a lot of things you would want to do differently. A good friend of mine who sat next to me for several years is now managing lots of money at another hedge fund and is doing very well, but he is not the same as me. What he learned was not to become me. He became someone else. He became him. Number 3. Trade within your comfort zone. If a position is too large, the trader will be prone to exit good trades on inconsequential corrections because fear will dominate the decision process. As Clark advises, you have to trade within your emotional capacity. Similarly, Vidic warns, limit your size in any position so that fear does not become the prevailing instinct guiding your judgment. In this sense, a smaller net exposure may actually yield better returns, even if the market moves in your favourable direction. For example, Taylor came into 2008 with a large net long exposure in high beta stocks in an increasingly risky market. Uncomfortable with the level of his exposure, Taylor sharply reduced his positions in early January. When the market subsequently plunged, later in the month, he was well positioned to increase his long exposure. Had Taylor remained heavily net long, he might instead have been forced to sell into the market weakness to reduce risk, thereby missing out in fully participating in the subsequent rebound. Number four, flexibility is an essential quality for trading success. Highly skilled traders will not only liquidate their positions if they believe they made a mistake, but will actually reverse those positions In April 2009, O'Shear was pessimistic about the financial outlook, but the market behavior was telling him that he was wrong. He formulated an alternative hypothesis that seemed to fit price action. That is, the markets were seeing the beginning of an Asia-led economic recovery. Staying with his original market expectation would have been costly, as both equity and commodity markets embarked on a multi-year rally. O'Shea's flexibility in recognizing that his original premise was wrong and his ability to reverse his trading posture turned a potentially disastrous year into a winning one. As another example, May's best trade of 2011 came from shorting Dry Bulk Shippers, a trade idea that ironically originated with the premise that these companies represented a buying opportunity. However, when in doing his research, May realized that he was not only wrong, but that he had it exactly backwards. He reversed his original trading plan. Clark emphasizes that good traders can change their minds in an instant. They can be absolutely convinced that the market is going higher in one moment and is just convinced it is going lower in the next. Number five. The need to adapt It would be nice to believe that if you can find a trading methodology that works and also have the discipline to apply it consistently then trading success is assured. Unfortunately, the real world is a bit more difficult. Markets change and strategies that work may eventually deteriorate. Good traders need to be vigilant to the possibility that once a reliable approach may lose its value or even become a losing strategy due to changing market conditions. For example, Thorpe was able to maintain the strong return risk of his statistical arbitrage approach by continually adapting it. By the time he got to the third iteration of the system, the original system had significantly degraded. Platt, whose firm Blue Crest trades both discretionary and systematic strategies, He believes that systematic approaches must continually be revised or else they will degrade. He describes the process as a research war. Jimmy Bolidimas had to adapt a less aggressive posture in positioning against ongoing trends. Once he realized that the growing participation of hedge funds was resulting in smoother and more prolonged market trends. Had he not responded to the changing market environment, his previous successful approach would likely have led to large losses. Number 6. Don't confuse the concepts of winning and losing trades with good and bad trades. A good trade can lose money, and a bad trade can make money. Even the best trading processes will lose a certain percentage of the time. There is no way of knowing prior which individual trade will make money. As long as the trade adhered to a process within a positive edge, it is a good trade, regardless of whether it wins or loses. Because, if similar trades are repeated multiple times, they will come out ahead. Conversely, a trade that is taken as a gamble is a bad trade, regardless of whether it wins or loses, because over time such trades will lose money. Number 7. Do more of what works and less of what doesn't. This core advice offered by Clark may sound obvious but the reality is that many traders violate this principle. It is quite common for a trader to be good at one type of trade, but to degrade performance by also engaging in trades without any clear edge, whether due to boredom or other reasons. Clark's message is that traders need to figure out what they are best at and then focus their attention on those type of trades. Number eight. If you're out of sync with the markets, trying harder won't help. When trading is going badly, trying harder is often likely to make matters even worse. If you're in a losing streak, the best action may be to step away from the markets. Clark advises that the best way to handle a losing streak is to liquidate everything and take a vacation. A physical break can serve to interrupt the downward spiral and loss of confidence that can develop during losing periods. Clark further advises that when trading is resumed, the size should be kept small until confidence is regained. Number nine, the road to success is paved with mistakes. Ray Dalio strongly believes that learning from mistakes is essential to improvement and ultimate success. Each mistake, if recognized and acted on, provides an opportunity for improving a trading approach. Most traders would benefit by writing down each mistake, the implied lesson, and the attended change in the trading process. Such a trading log can be periodically reviewed for reinforcement. Trading mistakes cannot be avoided, but repeating the same mistakes can be, and in doing so is often the difference between success and failure. Number 10. Wait for high conviction trades. Having the patience to wait for high expected value trades greatly enhances the return risk of individual trades. May, for example, is perfectly content to stay in the sidelines and do absolutely nothing until there is a trade opportunity that meets his guidelines. Greenblatt makes the point that for longer term investors, placing suboptimal positions may tie up capital that could be applied to more attractive opportunities that arise in the future or require liquidating such positions at a loss to free up capital. Number 11, trade because of perceived opportunity, not out of the desire to make money. Towards the end of 2010, out of a desire to reach his minimum profit target for the year, Benedict took marginal trades he otherwise would not have taken. These trades resulted in net losses, and as a consequence, Benedict ended up even further from his intended target. Trading to make money is always a bad idea. Traders should only take a trade when the market provides an opportunity as defined by their own individual strategy. Number 12, the importance of doing nothing. For some traders, the discipline and patience to do nothing when the environment is unfavorable or opportunities are lacking is a crucial element in their success. For example, Despite making minimal use of short positions, Daly achieved cumulative gross returns in excess of 800% during a 12-year period when the broad equity markets were essentially flat. In part, he accomplished this fiat by having the discipline to remain largely in cash during negative environments, which allowed him to sidestep large drawdowns during two major bear markets. The lesson is that if conditions are not right or the return risk is not sufficiently favourable, don't do anything. Beware of taking dubious trades out of impatience. Number 13. How a trade is implemented can be more important than the trade itself. A good example of this principle was provided by the way O'Shea traded his assumption that the bubble had burst in equities following the initial break from the March 2000 peak. He did not consider short positions in the Nasdaq because of the danger of treacherous bear market rallies. Instead, O'Shea implemented his trade idea via a long bond position, reasoning that a bear market in equities implied that most assets would recede from their inflated levels. This would lead to an economic slowdown and lower interest rates. Even though the stock market ultimately went much lower, If O'Shea had implemented his idea through a short stock index position, there is a high likelihood that he would have been stopped out by the 40% rebound in the NASDAQ index during the summer of 2000. In contrast, the long bond position, which he had implemented instead of going short the equity index, witnessed a fairly smooth uptrend. The trade was highly successful, not because the underlying premise was correct, which it was, but rather because of the way the trade was implemented. If Foshier had gone short the stock index instead, he would have been correct on his call, but most likely he would have lost money by being stopped out during the steep bear market rally in equities. Number 14. Trading around a position can be beneficial. Most traders tend to view trades as a two-step process, a decision when to enter and a decision when to exit it may be better to view trading as a dynamic rather than a static process between entry and exit points. The basic idea is that as a trade moves in the intended direction, the position exposure would be gradually reduced. The larger the move and the closer the market gets to a target's objective, the more the position would be reduced. After reducing exposure in this manner, the position will be reinstated on a market correction time the market retraced to a correction re-entry point, a net profit would be generated that otherwise would not have been realized. The choppier the market, the more excess profits trading around the position will generate. Even a trade in which the market fails to move in the intended direction on balance could still be profitable as a result of gains generated from lightening the total position on a favorable trend and reinstating liquidated portions of the position on corrections This strategy will also reduce the chances of being knocked out of a favourable position on a market correction, because if the position has already been reduced, the correction will have less impact and may even be desired to reinstate the liquidated portion of the position. The only time this strategy will have a net adverse impact is if the market keeps on going in the intended direction, without ever retracing to correction re-entry levels. This negative outcome however simply means that the original trade was profitable, but the total profits are smaller than they would have been otherwise. So in a nutshell, trading around a position will generate extra profits and increase the chances of staying with good trades at the expense of sometimes giving up portions of profits on trades that move smoothly in the intended direction. Now for Blodemus, trading around a position is a critical ingredient in his overall trading success. Not infrequently, it even allows him to be profitable on trade ideas when he's wrong. Number 15, precision size can be more important than the entry price. Too many traders focus only on the entry price and pay insufficient attention to the size of the position. Trading too large can result in good trades being liquidated at a loss because of fear. On the other hand, trading larger than normal when the profit potential appears to be much greater than the risk is one of the key ways in which many of the market wizards achieve superior returns. Trading smaller or not at all for lower probability trades and larger for high probability trades can even transform a losing strategy into a winning one. For example, by varying the bet size based on perceived probabilities, Thorpe was able to transform the negative edge in blackjack into a positive edge. An analogous principle would apply to trading strategy in which it was possible to identify higher and lower probability trades. Number 16. Determining the trade size. What is the optimal trade size? There is a mathematically precise answer, which is the Kelly criterion, and it will provide a higher cumulative return over the long run than any other strategy for determining trade size. The problem, however, is that the Kelly criterion assumes that the probability of winning and the ratio of the amount won to the amount lost per wager are precisely known. Although this assumption is valid for games of chance, In trading, the probability of winning is unknown, and at best can only be estimated. If win-loss probabilities can be reasonably estimated, then the Kelly criterion can provide a starting point for determining trade size. Thorpe recommends trading only half the Kelly amount, because the penalty for overestimating the correct trade size is severe, and because most people would find the volatility implied by the full Kelly amount too high, for their comfort levels. If win-loss probabilities can't be reasonably estimated, then the Kelly criterion can't be used. Number 17. Vary market exposure based on opportunities. Exposure levels and even the direction of exposure should vary based on opportunities and perceived relative value. For example, depending on whether stocks prices appear to be cheaply or expensively priced, Claugus will vary his net exposure range from 110% long to 70% short. Varying the exposure based on opportunity can lead to significantly improved performance results. Number 18. Seek an Asymmetric Return Risk Profile May structures his trades to be right skewed. That is, the maximum loss is limited, but the upside is open-ended. One common way of achieving this type of return risk profile is by being a selective buyer of options. Buying options when there is a perceived greater than normal probability of a large price move. O'Shea is another trader who structures almost all of his trades to be right skewed. Some of the trades he uses to achieve this return risk profile include long options, long credit default swap protection, long T-bills, short euro dollar spreads, all trades in which the maximum loss is constrained. Platt achieves right-skewed asymmetry at the portfolio level through the risk control process, which strictly limits each trader's maximum loss from the starting allocation each year, but does not raise the risk cutoff level if the trader generates profits during the year. In this way, the portfolio maximum loss is tightly curtailed, but the upside potential is open-ended. Number 19. Beware of trades born of euphoria. Caution against placing impulsive trades influenced by being caught up in market hysteria. Excessive euphoria in the market should be seen as a cautionary flag of a potential impending reversal. Number 20. If you are on the right side of euphoria or panic, lighten up. Parabolic price moves in either direction tend to end abruptly and sharply if you are fortunate enough to be on the right side of a market in which the price move turns near vertical, consider scaling out of the position while the trend is still moving in your direction. If you would be petrified to be on the other side of the market, that is probably a good sign that you should be lightening your position. Number 21. Staring at the screen all day can be expensive. Clark believes that watching every tick can lead to both overtrading and an increased chance of liquidating good positions. He advises finding a more productive use of time to avoid the pitfalls of watching the market too closely. Number 22. Just because you've heard it a hundred times doesn't make it less important. Risk control is critical. Many of the traders interviewed are more concerned about not losing money than making money. Risk control strategies mentioned by the traders include the following. Risk limits on individual trades. Many of the traders interviewed will risk only a small percentage of assets under management on any single trade. Ramsey, for example, only risks a loss of about 0.1% on any individual trade. Although such a close stop is probably too extreme for most traders to adopt, the general concept of using a relatively close stop at the trade inception, while allowing a wider stop relative to prevailing prices after a profit margin has been established, is an effective risk management approach that could work well for many traders. Exposure reduction thresholds. Despite achieving double-digit returns and managing assets in double-digit billions, the Bluecrest discretionary strategy has contained its worst drawdown to under 5% in more than a decade of trading through many volatile markets. The key to this amazing fiat of risk management has been the firm's exposure reduction rules. Bluecrest CEO, Michael Platt, restricts himself and other discretionary traders at the firm to a loss limit of 3% before the exposure allocation is cut in half. A loss of another 3% leads to the removal of the trader's entire allocation. These rigid controls severely limit the loss any trader can realise from a starting allocation. The rules encourage traders to be extremely conservative in their risk-taking at the start of each year. As traders register gains, however, they can increase their risk because the original exposure reduction thresholds remain unchanged for the year. In this manner, upside potential is open-ended while downside risk is severely curtailed. Barring huge overnight gaps in the market, larger losses can occur only through the surrender of year-to-date profits rather than losses of original capital. Benedict utilizes a similar risk management philosophy Anytime he approaches a 2.5% loss in any given month, he significantly reduces net exposure and continues to trade in a smaller size until the loss is recovered. In this manner, he severely constrains his potential loss in any given month. Precision size adjustments for changes in volatility. As examples of this approach in 2008, both Woodruff and Clark cut their exposure levels by approximately a factor of four in response to the steep increase in volatility. Trade-dependent risk controls. Some trades are inherently risk-constrained, whereas others have open-ended risk. In recognition of these differences, uniform risk controls across all trades may not be appropriate. For example, when Thorpe implemented arbitrage trades that had a well-defined maximum theoretical risk, he did not consider reducing exposure if the position went against him. In contrast, when he employed a trend-following strategy in which the trades were directional, and the risk was open-ended, he made exposure reduction on drawdowns part of the methodology. Number 23, don't try to be 100% right. Almost every trader has had the experience of the markets moving against their position sufficiently to raise significant concern regarding the potential additional loss while still believing the position is correct. Staying in the trade risks an uncomfortably large loss but liquidating the trade risks abandoning a good position at nearly the worst possible point. In such circumstances, Vidic advises that instead of making an all or nothing decision, traders should liquidate part of their position. Taking a partial loss is much easier than liquidating the entire position and will avoid the possibility of riding the entire position for a large loss. It will also preserve the potential for a partial recovery if the market turns around. Number 24, protective stops need to be consistent with the trade analysis. O'Shea explains that too many traders set stops based on their pain threshold rather than as a point that disproves their trade premise because traders can't stand the pain of a larger loss. They tend to set stops too close. That is at a point at which they still believe in the trade. Consequently, there is a tendency for some traders to try to repeatedly re-enter a trade after being stopped out potentially leading to multiple losses, which cumulatively can be larger than the single loss that would have occurred with a wider stop originally set at a meaningful level. Oshia advises that traders should first decide at which price they believe their trade is wrong, and then set the stop accordingly. If the implied loss to this stop point is uncomfortably large, then the position size should be reduced. Using this approach, If the market reaches the stop point it will be consistent with demonstrating that the original trade idea was wrong number 25 constraining monthly losses is only a good idea if it is consistent with the trading strategy although tightly constraining monthly losses is a prudent action for many traders for investors with a long-term perspective monthly loss constraints can be detrimental taylor for example believes that if he has a strong conviction that a stock will move much higher over the long term, then cutting exposure on interim weakness to limit the depth of a monthly loss would be a mistake. Similarly, Greenblatt asserts that value investors must maintain a long-term perspective and not be swayed by interim losses, providing that the fundamentals haven't changed. For longer-term investors such as Taylor and Greenblatt, monthly loss constraints would be in conflict with their strategy. Number 26, the power of diversification. Ray Dalio calls diversification the holy grail of investing. He points out that if assets are truly uncorrelated, diversification could improve return risk by as much as a factor of 5 to 1. Number 27, correlation can be misleading. Although being familiar with correlation between different markets is crucial to avoiding excessive risk, it is important to understand that correlation measures past price relationships. It is only relevant if there is reason to believe that the past correlation is a reasonable proxy for future correlation. Some market correlations are stable, but others can vary widely and even change sign. For example, stocks and bonds sometimes move in the same direction, and sometimes move inversely. If correlation is used during such a transition period, it can be worse than no information at all, because it can lead to the exact wrong conclusions about the future price relationships and risk. Number 28, the price action in related markets can sometimes provide important trading clues. For some traders, such as Benedict and Ramsey, the interaction of price movements in related markets is a critical input in their trading decision process. Although the price action in other markets can be important, there are no set rules in how such price action should be interpreted. Sometimes, one market may tend to lead another. In other situations, two markets may move in tandem, but then begin to move independently. A price behaviour change that may provide directional clues. As an example, after years of correlated price movements in early September 2011, equity prices rallied, but commodity prices weakened. Ramsey read the failure of commodity prices to respond to equity market strength as a signal of impending weakness. During the second half of September, commodity prices and commodity-influenced currencies plunged. Number 29. Markets behave differently in different environments. Any analysis of fundamental factors that assumes a static relationship between economic variables and market prices will be doomed to failure because markets behave differently in different environments. As Ray Dalio points out, The same fundamental conditions and government actions will have different price consequences in a deleveraging environment than in a recession. Number 30. Pay attention to how the market responds to news. A counter to anticipated response to market news may be more meaningful than the news item itself. Platt recalls a trade in which there was a continuing stream of adverse news. He repeatedly expected to lose money after each news item, and yet the market did not move against him. Platt read the inability of the market to respond to the news as a confirmation of his trade idea, and he quadrupled his position, turning into one of the biggest winners ever. Number 31. Major fundamental events may often be followed by counterintuitive price movements. Ray Dalia recalls two such critical events in his early trading career. The US abandonment of the gold standard in 1971, was followed by a huge market rally, as was the Mexican default in 1982. There are two explanations for this type of seemingly paradoxical price behavior. First, such major events are often fully anticipated and discounted, or even over-discounted. Second, a major bearish fundamental development may spur government actions that can often have a greater market impact than the event itself. Number 32. Situations characterized by the potential for a widely divergent binary outcome can often provide excellent buying opportunities in options. Option prices are primarily determined by models that assume that large price movements are unlikely. In circumstances when the fundamentals suggest a significant potential for either a large gain or large loss, option prices often fail to reflect the abnormally large probability of such outside price movements. Examples of this principle include Greenblatt's option trade in Wells Fargo and May's option trade in Capital One. Number 33. A stock can be well-priced even if it has already gone up a lot. Many traders miss participating in the best opportunities because they can't bring themselves to buy a stock or a market that has already seen a large move up. What matters, however, is not how much the stock has gone up, but rather how well a stock is priced relative to its future prospects. For example, Taylor's largest holding in Apple had already experienced a large price advance. And indeed, this prior large price gain kept many investors from buying the stock, despite it having excellent fundamentals. But in Taylor's opinion, the amount of the prior price gain was irrelevant because based on the earnings projections, the stock was priced cheap. Number 34 don't make trading decisions based on where you bought or sold. The market doesn't care where you entered your position. When Vidic felt that a stock that had just fallen all the way back to where he had bought it and it was going lower, he just got out, not letting his entry level affect the trading decision. Number 35, potential new revenue sources that are more than a year out may not be reflected in the current stock price. Clogus likes to look for situation where a company will recognize new revenue sources one or more years out because such future potential earnings are frequently not adequately discounted or discounted at all by the current price. Number 36. Value investing works. Greenblatt has demonstrated that value investing works both through a long career as a highly successful trader, using value principles and through rigorous computer-based research. The catch is that although value investing works over the long term, there are times when it works poorly. However, as Greenblatt points out, this periodic underperformance is actually the reason why value investing is able to maintain its edge. If it worked all the time, it would attract enough followers so the edge would disappear. Given the inherent long-term character of the efficiency of this approach, value investors need to have a similar long-term perspective to avoid inconsistencies between their methodology and trading decisions. Number 37, the efficient market hypothesis provides an inaccurate model of how the market really works. Prices are not always fair value. Sometimes prices will be much too high based on the prevailing information, and sometimes they'll be much too low. Greenblack quotes the metaphor originally used by Benjamin Graham in which he compares the market to a highly erratic business partner, who is sometimes willing to sell shares to you at absurdly low prices, and sometimes willing to buy shares from you at ridiculously high prices. The trader should take advantage of these bouts of emotional irrationality by the market. Of course, the consequence is that the value investor will typically be a seller during periods of market euphoria, and a buyer during market panics. To be able to hold fundamentally justified value positions through the market panics, the value investor needs to maintain a long-term perspective. Number 38, it is usually a mistake for a manager to alter investment decisions or the investment process to better fit investor demands. Greenblatt tells his students, you are setting yourself up for failure if you invest differently than you want to in order to please investors. Taylor also acknowledges this, same perspective when he states, I am trying to stop caring about what my clients think. Number 39. Volatility and risk are not synonymous. Low volatility does not imply low risk, and high volatility does not imply high risk. Investments subject to sporadic large risks may exhibit low volatility if a risk event is not present in the existing track record. For example. The strategy of selling out-of-the-money options can exhibit low volatility if there are no large, abrupt price moves, but is at risk of asymptotically increasing losses in the event of a sudden steep sell-off. On the other hand, traders such as May will exhibit high volatility because of occasional very large gains, not a factor that most investors would associate with risk or even consider undesirable, but will have strictly cut risk because of the asymmetric structure of their trades. So, some strategies, such as option selling, can have both low volatility and large open-ended risks. And some strategies, such as Maze can have both high volatility and constrained risk. Number 40. It is a mistake to select managers based solely on past performance. Greenblatt cites various empirical studies demonstrating that the past performance of managers has no predictive value regarding their future performance. So the single factor that overwhelmingly determines how investors choose their investments, that is past returns, has no effectiveness. Greenblatt advises choosing managers based on their process rather than the returns. As a related point, investors often make the mistake of equating manager performance in a given year with manager skill. Sometimes more skilled managers will underperform because they refuse to participate in market bubbles. The best performers during such periods often the most imprudent rather than the most skilled. Taylor underperformed in 1999 because he thought it was ridiculous to buy tech stocks at their inflated price levels. The same investment decision, however, was instrumental to his large outperformance in the subsequent years when these stocks witnessed a prolonged massive decline. In this sense, past performance can sometimes even be an inverse indicator. And that is it for our video on the top hedge fund manager tips. Hopefully you've found one or two of these tips useful and you can actually start implementing them into your own trading. You may not actually agree with all of them because there's actually quite a lot but these are the types of habits and the type of tips that the top traders and the top hedge fund managers are actually using in the markets today. If you're more interested in learning Forex and how to trade Forex you can actually sign up to our academy, the link's in the bio. will teach you the global macro approach how to apply fundamentals of the market, how to apply economic reports, how to analyse them and why it's so useful. Thanks for watching, do make sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram.